I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Our Bible reading is just going to be the last two verses of the chapter, which make up the last two verses of Peter's second epistle here, kind of his closing words. And as you'll notice, you'll probably pick up immediately from the reading, uh, there is quite a tight connection with what our brother read for the scripture reading just a few moments ago. And I'll mention some of those things and some introductory comments here. But let's read together these last two verses of Second Peter 3. And then having read those, we'll seek the Lord in prayer together for his help in the preaching of the word today. But Second Peter 3, verse number 17. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away by the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Amen. We'll end the reading there and let's seek the Lord in prayer together. Let's pray. Our Father, as we continue in your presence this morning, we continue with a confidence that you grant the Holy Spirit to those that ask. And as we're here today, we do ask for that presence of the Holy Spirit with us to do his work of pointing our attention to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're commanded in this passage to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And so we pray that the preaching of your word in this place this morning would be to that end. We pray that you would speak to every heart and that you would have a word that is the most needful thing for each individual in their growth in grace. Whether it be a word of challenge, rebuke, encouragement, you know exactly the need of every heart. And so we pray that you, by your spirit, in that sovereign and we would even acknowledge miraculous way that only you can do. We pray that you would speak to each one. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think there is any better teacher than experience. If you've ever hired somebody to come to your home and do work, uh, you can find a cheaper option often. But often that guy that's the cheapest is the one with the least amount of experience. You often just get what you pay for. And that person that doesn't have the right experience sometimes doesn't know what to foresee down the road as a potential problem. Uh, they may start doing something only to realize that they have to undo an hour's worth of work because they forgot this other thing. Or they didn't realize that doing this could make this other thing go wrong just simply because of a lack of experience. And uh, those of us with some years behind us, I think, have come to learn that lesson perhaps far better than some of the younger ones here. There really just is no better teacher and really nothing can, can replace 
experience. If you've ever taken a class, you can sometimes tell quite quickly the guy that has learned his subject matter only from a book and is just simply regurgitating the academics of the thing as opposed to that teacher that's actually been in the field, in the trenches, in the nine to five of the job and done the work and has been there, done that and has seen and has the experience, he is able to teach and to communicate on a much deeper and a much more successful level than that person who has learned their craft only from theory or the academics of it all. Well, when we come to these verses at the end of 2 Peter, we're being instructed by a man who has experience. Peter tells us here in these verses, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware. Beware. Be careful. Be on guard. And what is it that we're to beware of that he is, is warning us about. He says, Beware being led away with the error of the wicked. Beware of falling from your own steadfastness. Now we read about Peter in Mark chapter 14 just a few moments ago. Peter was a man who declared before Christ... And before all of his fellow apostles, I am steadfast. He had the audacity to say that if everybody else were to forsake you and flee, I'm not going to do that. I am going to be steadfast. I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to deny you. I'm not going to forsake you. Well, if you pay attention to that Bible reading... It wasn't just a few moments later that Christ had said to Peter, James and John, those three of that inner circle, as it were, that went with Christ farther into the garden. Christ asked them to pray. And it wasn't moments after Peter, with all of his his vehement steadfastness, said, I'm not going to do anything wrong. He's asleep. And the Lord comes to him, wakes him up, and could you not watch with me just one hour? Comes the second time, and Peter's asleep again, and Mark even tells us there in the gospel, <laughs> this time Peter, did, he didn't even have words. He's like, "What? how do I, I messed up, what do I do? The third time, and Christ comforts them, the time has come. Well then, you question Peter. Peter, what's going on in your heart now? Well, here comes Judas. And Mark doesn't tell us that it was Peter, but we know from the other Gospels, it was Peter that drew that sword and cut Malchus's ear. And so you're cheering for Peter. And Peter seems to be a man that's going to keep his word. He said, I'm not going to deny you. I'm willing to die for you. And so this great multitude comes... And Peter takes the sword. I'm going to fight for Jesus. And cuts off Malchus's ear. Well, then we ended that reading in Peter, that verse number 50. I'm sorry, in Mark 14, 50. They all forsook him and fled. 
and off they go. Well, it's not long until Peter's there warming himself around that campfire, and what does he do? He falls from his own steadfastness. This very man who said, I'm willing to die for you, not at, at the sharp pointy spear of a Roman soldier, but at the insinuations of a young servant girl. He, he, he falls like a leaf. And he denies the Lord. Even with cursings, he denies the Lord. He's a man who fell from his own steadfastness. He did the very thing that now a man with experience is saying, beware, because I know, I know personally that this is a very real possibility for you to do. And don't do that thing that I did. Don't fall from your own steadfastness. There's a good reason that the hymn writer penned the words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. If you're honest with your own heart, every time you sing those words, you know they're true. You know they're true. These verses this morning warn us along those very lines. They give us two commands, and that's really what I want to focus our attention on this morning is these two commands. My, I understand all that I've spoken to you about in my introduction has really been on the negative side of that first command, but we'll get to the second in verse 18. Uh, secondly, obviously. But the first command is beware of falling. You'll see that in verse number 17. Beware of falling. That's the first one. The second command is in verse number 18, but grow in grace. And so two things we're commanded to do here. So let's consider this first one from verse number 17 first. Beware of falling. Now, I do want to be very, very clear, and I, I, I think and I, I hope I can take for granted the fact that I'm preaching to a congregation of people who you, you already know, and it should go without saying, but you already know that Peter is not here talking about falling away from, from grace, falling away from salvation. That, that's not what Peter is communicating at all. He's not saying, beware lest you lose your salvation. That, that's not what he's communicating. It was actually Peter himself who gives us one of those great verses that we use in defending the perseverance of the saints. Peter is the one who tells us that we are kept by the power of God. So it's not you that keeps yourself saved. It is the power of God that keeps you believing and faithful in Christ. But obviously from Peter's own experience, that does not mean that we cannot simultaneously fall away from a steadfastness that we had in our walk with Christ. Peter is, is really talking here about falling from a previous steadfast devotion to Christ. The word that is used for falling here in verse number 17 is a word that's also used in Acts 27, verse number 26, and it refers to a ship that has run aground, a shipwreck, a ship that has, has run aground and would therefore would splinter up and would be destroyed. And that's what Peter is speaking about. If I could put it to you in these terms, 
falling from your own steadfastness is to just make a complete mess of things. It's to just make a mess of stuff. And that's what Peter's warning us against. Falling away, and he he points our attention to uh, something that triggers that here, being led away by the error of the wicked. This word translated as error in the verse is one that is used figuratively other places in the New Testament for wandering aimlessly off a path. Can I put it this way? Not paying attention to where you're going. You ever been out in the woods and, and you're headed back to the truck or headed to you know, a particular destination and you, you stop paying attention to the path and you, you wander off the path and next thing you know, you don't know where you are. You're, you're lost in the woods. And you have to reorientate and, and try to figure out where did I go wrong and backtrack and, and get back on the path. Well, this is what he's talking about. Falling from your own steadfastness by wandering off the path. What kind of steadfastness is Peter talking about? I think in the context, we can pick up some clues as to what he's talking about. I want to point out just two things. Look at verse number 16. He says here in verse number 16, as, as also in all his epistles, speaking of them in these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. He's talking about Paul and Paul's epistles, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, so they twist, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Peter is speaking about one of these errors of the wicked. Wicked people that would take the word of God and they would manipulate it in such a way, they would twist the scriptures in such a way as to deceive and to lead away. In verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3 here, Peter says that it is a purpose of his epistle to remind them about the words of the prophets, to to remind his readers of what the Old Testament prophets had already communicated. Look at verses 4 and 5, and saying some of these came that were twisting the scriptures. I think Paul's, or Peter is illustrating this to some degree for us, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? And so the Old Testament prophets had promised his coming, and there were those who said, where is this? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly, willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Here these were scoffers, walking after their own lust, denying the promise of the coming of Christ. Verse 5, denying the creation of the world. Verse 6, denying Noah's flood. Verse 7, denying the promise of the second coming. And so here are wicked men twisting the scriptures, resting the scriptures, that would cause some to be led away. And Paul's, or Peter's saying, beware of that. You wonder what other examples Peter is, is thinking about. In verse number 16, when he speaks of that resting the scriptures, 
Now, if we take back a little bit more of a historical context for all this, and, and if I can play on the theme that I was seeking to communicate to you in my introduction, we're, we're dealing here with a man with experience. Here's a man who's been there, a man who personally fell away from his own steadfastness. Not just then of what we read in Mark, but Peter's writing this epistle about 10 years after the Galatian controversy. If you're not very familiar with everything that happened during that, you can go read the book of Galatians and you'll see that Paul had to confront Peter very directly. Paul confronted Peter very forthrightly because Peter had to some degree begun to align himself with the opinion of those Judaizers. Now, those Judaizers were false teachers, and Paul called them as much. Now, Peter had, had begun to align himself with them, and Peter had begun to distance himself from the Gentiles. Can we put it just bluntly this way? Because of the fear of man, and Peter was in the wrong. And Paul called him on it. And Paul addressed him very forthrightly, very directly, rebuked him to his face. And, and Peter was restored and made right, and, and, and all was good. But you go to Galatians 2, and you'll find that even Barnabas was caught up in that. Barnabas had, had gone to ally with these Judaizers as well. Peter's steadfastness had been weakened again. The danger of falling from a steadfast faithfulness to the scriptures is something that's still with us today. It's very prevalent today. And I mean, I could spend the rest of the day talking to you of examples of prominent Bible teachers. You watch their videos on YouTube, you can listen to their podcasts, you can pull them up and listen, and, and they say some great things, except for that doctrine, or except for that doctrine, or except for this other doctrine. And, and where, they're, where they speak well, they're brilliant. But some of them completely miss the heart of the gospel. They're wrong on imputation. They're wrong on the deity of Christ. They would lead you to believe that homosexual marriage is something that's perfectly okay and fine. Something that God would bless and honor. And these are very dangerous, very dangerous people. But yet they have the ear of so many that have been stolen away. Their mind has been twisted and they've fallen away from a steadfast devotion to the faithfulness of the scriptures and the word of God. One commentator on these verses said, the lies which are abroad clothe themselves in the garb of truth. Many of you would recognize the name Dr. Edward Pinozian, longtime professor at Bob Jones University, taught world history for like ever. My mom and dad took history from Dr. Panosian. He said it a different way. He said the worst kind of error is truth mixed with error. It's mostly true, 
but it's got error in it. And that error makes it too dangerous to deal with. And you just have to stay away. Beware. There's a great danger in a subtle shift away from a steadfast faithfulness to Scripture. But let me give you another example up in verse 11. The second example I would put before you is this, and that is falling away from a holy lifestyle and personal godliness. Verse 11, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. Commenting on this, Matthew Henry said, If we imbibe the opinions of the wicked, we shall too soon imitate their practices. And we've seen that played out, have we not? Even, even in the church. Peter's saying in this context, uh, I'm sorry, he is saying this in the context of being watchful for the second coming. You remember Christ in his Olivet Discourses. What, what was the thing that he said over and over and over again? Watch. Watch, watch, watch. Be ready. Because you don't know what the hour is. You don't know when it will be. But watch and be ready. Constantly watch and be ready. And that's the context here that he's saying this. Look at verse number 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Peter's not saying anything different than what Christ had said in in those discourses uh, at the end of his ministry. Watch and be ready. Pursue holiness in the fear of God. That's what we're called to as believers. We're called to a life of holiness, a life of godliness. You know, we often think as, as long as I'm not that bad, then I'm doing okay. I'm doing pretty good. I don't mean to be silly in putting it this way, but Satan doesn't need you to be an axe murderer. I would put it to you so bluntly as to say, that's what what Satan's after you to do at all. He's not wanting you to go, you know, chop up a bunch of people and and make the news. In, In a sense, that doesn't advance his cause all that much. Because his cause is to undermine the kingdom of God. And we learn in Scripture, do we not, that... We are not ignorant of his devices. We're not to be ignorant about what Satan is up to. He's up to no good. He is a liar. He is the father of that. But we know and we see in Scripture his work is a subtle work in the heart. He doesn't need you to be an axe murderer. He just needs you to wake up on Sunday morning and decide you're going to take the family to the lake instead of church. That's good enough for him. Right? He won. He he needs you to wake up on Sunday morning with a tea time scheduled for 930. Right? And he won. You didn't go kill anybody. All you did is go play golf. Right? But there's that subtle infiltration into the heart that now has got a shift of focus, a shift of attention off of the things of the Lord. You know, he would have you in 
you know, a, a Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, emphasize the importance of family time over worship. Now that's just a subtle little thing. Is family time important? Well, absolutely, 100% it is. But worship is more important. Right? He, he's, he's okay with you missing prayer meeting well, because I've got to get my kids in bed early. Really? That's more important than the place of prayer? I would submit to you in that, Satan has accomplished that subtle shift of focus of just a priority that's misplaced. This evening we'll be looking at Zechariah and, and tying it with Haggai, those two prophets post-exilic prophets. And Haggai's message especially is one that is so apropos for us all because Haggai began to preach to the people and his message began with consider your ways. Consider your ways. Think about what you're really doing. And the substance of what he communicates in chapter 1 is the Lord brought you to the land of Israel out of captivity, and your job was to build the temple. That's what the Lord gave you to do. He set your hands to that task. They had laid the foundation. There were some weeping. There were some crying. I'm, I'm crying and weeping is the same thing. There were some weeping. There were some laughing. Right? There, there were some weeping because they were the older generation, and they saw this new foundation, and they thought, man, this is pretty lousy. This is not what it used to be. The best illustration I've heard of this that really captures it in my mind, imagine Solomon's temple the size of a, a football field, you know, 100 yards long football field. And then you build, that's all destroyed, and the new foundation's the size of a volleyball court. Right? I mean, we're, we're, we're dealing with something that's way smaller. And so they were discouraged. Others were just thrilled to death. We're getting a temple. They've been in exile for 70 years. They'd heard the stories. they never seen the first one. It was destroyed before they were born. And now this little thing, but hey, this is great. We're getting a temple. But yet now almost 20 years had gone by, 18-ish years had gone by. And Haggai says, you're so consumed with building your own house, you forgot the temple of the Lord. You started, but... What's going on? And Haggai says that the Lord, the Lord was telling them that the Lord had made their crops not grow the way that they normally would. The Lord had caused their cattle and their, their herds not to reproduce as they normally would. And I liken it to taking a, a, a hose spigot and the Lord just says, I'm just going to turn this down a little bit. This spigot of blessing, I'm just going to turn this down a little bit. How come? It's because your priorities were just all out of whack. Your priorities were all on your own stuff and not on the work that God had called you to do. Now, Zechariah will come along and he'll preach and he'll, he'll call the people to repentance and there will be some. And in Zechariah 8... We see the Lord reaching for the spigot and he turns it just full blast when, when the people's focus was on the Lord's work in the right way. 
You know, Satan just wants that subtle little shift away from faithfulness, away from steadfastness. He doesn't want you to go out and kill your next door neighbor. That doesn't help much. That doesn't make him look good, right? But just good moral people that, you know, eat at Chick, y'all have Chick-fil-A here? Eat at Chick-fil-A and shop at Hobby Lobby, right? That, that's a good Christian folk. If you eat at Chick-fil-A, you shop at Hobby Lobby. You know, how much, what more could God want from you? But that's the attitude of American Christianity. But I would submit to you, it's a falling away from a right, steadfast devotion to Christ. And Peter warns against this. He says, don't do it. And again, it's a man with experience. Because he did fall away. He, he literally denied and cursed the fact that he even knew who Jesus was. He aligned himself with these false teachers for a time. And Peter or Paul had to bring him back. Peter knows what he's talking about. And so he warns us, don't go that direction. Don't go there. But instead, do something different. And that's where we come to verse number 18. Our second point here this morning, and that is to grow in grace. So beware of falling, but now secondly, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, a surface reading of this text would lead one to believe that we're talking about two different things here, growing in grace and growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as if they're two separate things. But there's a very simple, well-known rule of Greek grammar that is part of the construction here. And growing in grace and growing in knowledge, the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, grammatically really is just one and the same thing. Growing in the knowledge of Christ is to grow in grace. And so if this is so important... And if this is the remedy, can I put it that way, to falling away from your own steadfastness, then it's very important that we understand what Peter is talking about here when he says to grow in grace. And so I want to look at four aspects here of what it means to grow in grace. Four things. The first one, I want you to understand that growing in grace is possible. Growing in grace is absolutely possible. Christians are not immune from discouragement. You're not immune from depression. Some of you might struggle with that more than others. There are some Christians that struggle with a melancholy, emotional spirit, and they they really are down, and things get them down, and they they carry burdens on their shoulders. and And part of sanctification is is learning to cast those things on the Lord. But for some believers, that's a more difficult thing to do. And, and don't, if, if that's not your thing, don't belittle that. Because that same person wonders why you lie so much. Right? You're, you're, you just do a different sin. You're, you have a different encumbering weight. You have a different sin that bothers you. It, it might not be discouragement or, or depression. You might not be tended that way, but you're a liar. Or you, you can't control lust or, or whatever. We all have our thing. But growing in grace and getting past that thing is possible, or else we wouldn't be told to do it. We can grow in grace. The Christian life often, and any of you that have been saved for any length of time at all know that the Christian life is too often 
a two-step forward, three-step backward kind of thing. And then every so often we get three steps forward and two steps back. But then it's a two-step forward and three steps back. So we press, we're, we're aiming forward. One of our preachers at the uh, youth camp just recently, you may have heard some of the young people that came back from the youth camp talk about this already, but uh, one of the preachers said that the Christian life is not about perfection, it is about the pursuit. And there's something very, very good about that. We are pursuing a growth in grace. Now, we understand in our sanctification, we're not going to reach the perfection on this side of eternity. We long for that. But on this side of eternity, we are pursuing that. We are pursuing glory. But there's such a great tendency, is there not, just to throw in the towel and give up? You know, just call it. You know, you've tried for so long. You've been saved five years, ten years, fifteen years. And when, when, when are you ever going to get victory over this? And so you just throw your hands up and say, yeah, it's too hard. Can't do it. No, growth in grace is possible. If Peter tells us to grow in grace, then that means it's something that is attainable. It's something that's possible. It may be baby steps, but it's possible. It may be hard, but it's possible. It may be discouraging along the way, but it's possible. Growing in grace is possible. But I would submit to you, secondly, here, growing in grace is enjoyable. It is enjoyable. The pleasures of sin are only for a season, but the pleasures of righteousness are for eternity. The pleasures of serving the Lord are pleasures that last forever. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity. He's not saying that it's meaningless. He's not saying that it's worthless. He's not saying that it's of no value at all. He's just saying that it's not of any eternal value. But let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. That's the goal. That's the end. That's the whole duty of man. Fear God. Keep his commandments. And that's enjoyable. Psalm 16, is it? At the right hand of God there are pleasures forevermore that's where you find true joy that's where you find true peace that's where you find true satisfaction sin just brings with it guilt and misery and it's just awful it's just awful but if you're a Christian when you do fall you don't stay fallen you know we've talked bad about Peter this man who fell from his own steadfastness. And he, he, he denied the Lord. Rooster crowed. And what did he do? He didn't do what Judas did. Judas realized, I did wrong. He went back with those 30 pieces of silver. He threw them on the ground. And he went out and hanged himself. But not Peter. What did Peter do? Peter went out and he wept bitterly. Why? Because when he said, Lord, if everybody else forsakes you, I'm not going to do that. Peter meant that from the bottom of his heart. When Peter said, I'm willing to die for you, Peter meant that from the bottom of his heart. Peter was serious. And I would submit to you, Peter was sincere in what he said. 
but he was weak. And that's not enjoyable. Going, doing, doing something that leads you to go out and weep bitterly, that's not enjoyable. It's not. There's no lasting peace or contentment in sin. But where is there lasting peace and contentment? Look at verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace. A peace of conscience. A peace in your soul that you can say truly, it is well with my soul. There is peace in enjoying the gospel. There is peace in knowing forgiveness. There is peace in pursuing holiness. And you will not grow in grace until you come to understand that the things of the Lord are far better and lasting and far more fulfilling than the things of this world. The Bible teaches us that over and over and over, does it not? Christ says, we're told of Christ, he's the water of life. But the unbeliever goes to seek water from broken cisterns, water that ends up being bitter. Christ tells us that he's the bread of life, but sinners are happy with the husks thrown out for the pigs. Christ tells us, I'm the light of the world. But the unbeliever loves darkness more than light because his deeds are evil. Growing in grace is something that is enjoyable to pursue because the pleasures of God are far better and far more lasting and far more fulfilling than the pleasures of this world. But then a third thing here, growing in grace is recognizable. It's something you can recognize. You ever planted a seed? Our kids have done these little biology things in their home school. They get a little styrofoam cup, fill it with dirt, put a little seed in there, poke it down, put some water on it, and you wait. And day two, nothing. Day three, nothing. Four, five, six, still nothing. Day seven, the little, you see the little tiny green at the dirt at breakfast. And by dinner, the thing, like, what? One day, it's like that tall now. You wake up the next morning, it's like doubled. And it gets bigger. And it gets bigger. And then there's a little flower or fruit or whatever you planted. And it's amazing to watch. The Christian life's that way. Growth might be slow, but it is recognizable. Maybe not from today to tomorrow, but month by month, year by year. We had a tree fall in our yard, and when we had first moved, there was a hammock hanging from that big eye bolt, you know, spun into the tree. And I'd forgotten all about it. The tree fell. So we're cutting the tree up, and we find that bolt. And the tree had, I mean, it started a bolt, what, inch and a half, two inches. The tree had all but consumed that bolt already in four or five years. And, you know, who knows the, the height of it? I don't know. But that was something that was 
obviously recognizable. That tree had grown. Now, Lydia sat there and did dishes and looked at that tree out the window every single day. And she never once commented to me about how that tree has grown. But it did. It did. It was obvious that it did upon closer examination. And is that not the Christian life? As you spend time in the scriptures, you you grow in grace. It's Peter who tells us about the desiring the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Peter's the one that talks about that. And over time, as you spend time in the scriptures, you'll find that you know, in those opportunities at the office, the workplace, with friends, with family, whatever, those verses tend to come to mind much more smoothly than they used to because of a familiarity with the Word of God. As you spend time in prayer, you're going to grow in grace. You learn to trust the Lord. Prayer is a conforming of our will to God's. And as we spend time in prayer with the Lord, we, we learn to, to rest on Him. We learn to cast our cares upon Him because He cares for us. As you spend time under the preaching of the Word, you will grow in grace. There is an intangible, it's a promise that God has given to the preaching of His Word that in some ways is a, a different promise than He's given to any of the other means of grace. It is through the preaching of the Word that He's promised to save them that believe. When the Holy Spirit deals with a preacher for a message for that people at that time, and in His sovereignty brings those people to that service, those people log into the internet at that time, they click on that sermon, they listen to that word for that moment, and the Lord uses that. You spend time surrounded by Christian friends, iron, sharpening iron, you grow in grace. And that growth over time becomes something that is recognizable, a more consistent walk with the Lord. As we spend time teaching and admonishing one another, we're we're told in Colossians to to do that in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But that's all part of our growth in grace. We're told in Hebrews to consider one another, to provoke one another unto love and good works. Sometimes we just provoke one another. But we're supposed to provoke one another unto love and good works. But that's what we're told to do. That provoking is a great encouragement that we're to give to one another. Hey, you're doing wrong. Stop doing wrong. Stop doing that. Your attitude stinks. You need to do this different. You need to serve the Lord better. There's a legitimate... Among friends, among family, provoking one another, encouraging one another to that steadfast faithfulness to a growth in grace. If we're not in the Lord's presence, if you're not consistently in the Lord's house, if you're not consistently in prayer, consistently in the scriptures, how do you expect to grow in grace? What plan do you have to grow in grace? If you never water or Feed your plants. What plan do you have for them to grow? It's not going to happen. They have to have water. They have to have food. They have to have sunlight to grow. The world's not going to encourage you this way. 
If, if the bulk of your time is focused on worldly things, then your growth in grace is going to be stunted. Our focus has to be on the things of the Lord as we pursue the Lord to grow in grace. But I'll leave you with the last thing here, and that is growing in grace is inevitable. If you're truly born again, you are going to grow in grace. It might be very, very slow, but it will happen because God's the ones in in charge of this. I, I think you all are theologically astute to know that really what we're talking about here is sanctification. We're not using the big fancy word. I'm using the words growing grace rather than sanctification. But this is what we're talking about. Right? Our sanctification is inevitable if you're truly born again. Because it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God is the one at work. Now, we use some other big fancy theological terms Uh, There is part of our salvation that is monergistic, and there's part of our salvation that is synergistic. Monergistic, mono, one, the gistic part comes from the the Greek for work, one worker. Well, your justification, that's monergistic. You don't have any, you don't participate in, you don't justify yourself. You don't help God justify you. It is God that justifies. Monergistic. Regeneration, that's monergistic. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. You don't participate in that. You don't help with that. But when we come to sanctification, that's a synergistic work of God. It is God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It is God that sanctifies you. But how does our catechism put it? We daily die unto sin and we daily live unto righteousness there is a working together in our growing in grace there are choices that you have to make you can't say lord i want to i want to grow in grace please please help me resist temptation and then just turn on your netflix and just mindlessly flip through all the garbage on Netflix and say, Lord, please, please help me not be tempted by all this garbage I'm looking at. Seriously? You, you, you got to turn it off, right? If, if you know that this sin is a temptation, don't go there. Don't do that thing. Stay away from that thing. There, there is a working together, but it is an inevitability because God will sanctify those that are his. God will keep, God will preserve, and God will grow those that are his. We do much better to go along for the ride than to fight against it. Right? We may as well get on board. This is, this is where God is taking us. And I don't mean to be flippant in saying it that way, but we may as well go with him where he wants us to go. If you don't see any growth in grace, I say growth in grace is inevitable, but this this is something to examine your heart on. If you see zero growth in grace, like there's none, and like you're listening to all this, it's like, I don't even know what this man's talking about. Or I don't really care about anything that this man's talking about. Well, then you're not saved. There's never been a work of grace. There has to be an initial work of grace. 
of saving grace, of regenerating grace to, to convert you to Christ. If you've never done that, I would call upon you to call upon the name of the Lord, to grow in grace and the knowledge to seek the Lord. Seek that. Seek the Lord. And those that seek the Lord, the Lord has said, I will be found. If you call unto me, I will answer thee. He will come. He will reveal himself to you if you seek him with all your heart. This is what we see in the life of Peter himself. He sinned. He sinned badly. But Peter received forgiveness from the Lord. And falling from your own steadfastness does not make you unusable in the kingdom of God. We see that from Peter. right? Peter didn't make himself unusable. Barnabas, he got led away with those Judaizers too. But Barnabas was not unusable. Even John Mark, John Mark and Paul had a big falling out. We don't know exactly what happened, but Mark, we assume from the story, Mark was in the wrong. But yet later, Mark and Paul were reconciled and John Mark was usable in the kingdom. So if you've fallen from your own steadfastness, don't give up. Grow in grace. And then in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray the Lord will use this in each of our hearts, that we not be led away by the error of the wicked, that we are mindful of Satan's devices. We do know what he's up to, and we avoid the temptations. We, do, we avoid the pitfalls. We avoid the traps. We avoid the obstacles in the road, and we seek the Lord to grow and to know him more and more day by day. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for your word this morning. We, we freely acknowledge our weakness and the fact that we are prone to wander. We're, we're prone to fall away. But we do thank you that we can rest on that confidence that you are the one that keeps us. And though we fall, we shall not be utterly cast down. You know our frame. You know that we're but dust. And so we pray that you would keep us to yourself. Give us that desire in the inward man to grow in grace. Bless our fellowship time together. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.